Romans chapter 9, or you could follow along with me on the screens behind me. I'm going to be reading from the New Revised Standard Version, and I'm going to read uh, from verse 1 to verse 26. Romans chapter 9. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, comes the Messiah, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. It is not as though the word of God had failed, for not all Israelites truly belong to Israel, and not all of Abraham's children are his true descendants. But it is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as descendants. For this is what the promise said, about this time I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Nor is that all. Something similar happened to Rebekah when she had conceived children by one husband, our ancestor Isaac. Even before they had been born or had done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose of election might continue, not by works, but by his call, she was told, the elder shall serve the younger. It is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. What then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for this very purpose of showing my power in you, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he has mercy, or whom he chooses, and he hardens the heart of whomever he chooses. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who indeed are you, O human being, to argue with God? Will, that, will what is molded say to the one who molds it, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one object for special use and another for ordinary use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience, patience the objects of wrath that are made for destruction? And what if he has done so in order to make known the riches of his glory for the objects of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, including us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who, who was not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called children of the living God. The word of the Lord. 
So I have been waiting for 20 years for an opportunity to share this story. And this is the day. Many of you know um, some of my background because I have shared it in the past here. I came to faith through the ministry of a Pentecostal congregation in central Illinois. And God met me and rescued me from a destructive life in gangs. And uh, I was close to my 17th birthday, a couple weeks shy of my 17th birthday. That congregation in Urbana, Illinois embraced me. They treated me like a lost son come home. They adopted me into their family and through their love, I, I, I experienced the love of God. Well, later that year, a deacon in that congregation helped me to get my first desk job. I was uh, working as a page layout and copy editor at a pre-press publisher, and the deacon was the manager of this publisher. But he wasn't the only leader from my home church that worked there. There was also an editor who was an elder at my church, and he had been an overseas missionary for many years. He spoke several different languages, and he had some formal training in biblical studies. He became a mentor to me that year, and I remember going to him many times for advice. We would have Bible study in the break room. We even started our own prayer group before work started uh, early in the morning. Well, while my life was starting to get on track and I was seemingly getting my act together, some of my closest friends were still stuck in gang life and not doing well at all. I shared the gospel with some of them, and um, one of them joined my church's youth group, and he even started carrying his Bible uh, at school, which was amazing. And um, everything seemed to be going well for him until uh, his Buddhist family found out. And I remember this tearful, intense, frustrating conversation in his bedroom when he told me that he could no longer be a Christian. So I showed up to work the next day feeling defeated and discouraged. And I also think I was feeling something like survivor's guilt. Like why was I saved and my friends were not? And I remember that elder uh, pulling me aside because he saw that I was distraught and asking me what was wrong. And I told him that um, I was grieving my friends, you know, being lost. And I was asking myself and asking God, why me? Why am I saved and they are not? And maybe he heard in my grief the lament of Paul in this passage for his kin kinsmen. And so he, I'll never forget what he said to me because this was one of those moments in my life that became a defining moment, like changed the trajectory of my life. He said, he, he looked me dead in the eye and he said with a deadpan, the reason your friends aren't saved is because they're reprobates and you are elect. And there was an awkward pause, and I said, what are you talking about? Because <laughs> I had no idea what these words meant. And he proceeded to teach me the doctrines of election and predestination. And he said that God had, before creation, chosen sovereignly who would go to heaven and who would go to hell. And it had nothing to do with anything that we do, good or bad. It was just God's sovereign choice. And I was stunned, I was shocked, and I felt hot blood beginning to boil in my body. And I 
got really angry really quickly and I asked him a clarifying question. I said, are you saying that God arbitrarily sends people to hell who haven't done anything wrong? And he said, yes. And I could have exploded. I felt dizzy with anger. And my mind flashed back to that night when I came to Christ in a powerful demonstration of the Spirit, and I felt overwhelmed by love, and I felt freed, and all of a sudden, all of that felt phony. And I said to him, a man that I respected so much, I said to him, if that's what God is like, then I don't want anything to do with God. That God sounds like a monster. And I said, I couldn't worship that God. And that's when he got out his big King James Bible, I think it was New King James, actually. And he turned it to Romans chapter 9. And he began reading from verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he find, still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing that formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me this way? Does not the potter have the power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor. And I'll never forget that when he got to verse 20, he said, that's you. You're the man who talks back to God. And after this conversation, I was changed. I was a different person. I had a, an awakening of sorts. And I began a journey that, I, that I'm still on today. I became a theology nerd. Before that conversation, I honestly wasn't all that studious. I didn't like to read as a kid. I even, uh, even though I tested into honors English in my freshman year, I didn't do any of the work. <laughs> and um, I was preoccupied with other things in school. And so I dropped out of high school when I was a sophomore. So to be honest with you, I think the Bible was probably the pr pretty much the first book I took seriously and read seriously. And that wasn't until I was 17. But if being a theology nerd was a superpower, <laughs> that night was my origin story. After that night, a fire was lit in my belly to research, to read, to learn, to understand everything I could get my hands on about election and predestination and middle knowledge and Calvinism and Arminianism and open theism and process theism and Molinism and monergism and all the isms. I had to know all of it because I needed to find the answers to these questions about personal salvation because I felt like my faith hung in the balance. Some people are wired this way, that in order for their hearts to be free to worship God, their minds have to be satisfied. And that's how I felt. I'm not going to bore you with my 20-year pilgrimage, theological pilgrimage. I'm going to give you the Cliff's, the Cliff's Notes. Here's the Cliff's Notes on 20 years of studying this subject. Romans chapter 9 through, and chapters 9 through chapters 11 are not about personal salvation. They just aren't. Romans chapters 9 through 11 are about Israel and the Gentiles. It's about the role of these two cultural and ethnic groups in God's redemptive purposes 
and what that has to say to the factions in the church at Rome. That's what they're about. Rather than reading Romans as if it's some kind of abstract theology textbook, we have been intentionally approaching Romans as the pastoral letter that it is. To do this, we have to keep every passage in its first century context. Every part of Romans has to do with the social, economic, cultural, and ethnic context into which Paul is speaking. There were factions in the church at Rome that Paul calls the weak and the strong. The so-called weak were primarily the Jewish disciples, and they were observant of the Jewish law, the Torah. They lacked social power and privilege and wealth, but they judged the strong for their freedom in Christ, which they considered compromise. These disciples boasted of their privilege as true Israelites, But the strong, the so-called strong, they boasted of their privilege in Roman society. Some of them were wealthy socialites. They were mostly Gentile disciples of Jesus. And they were free from the law. They did not keep Torah the way that the, the weak did. They, they considered the practices of the weak to be exclusionary. So the strong boasted in their privilege in Roman society. Now, by talking about this context, we keep everything in the context of what we're talking about today. It's important that, even, that we see even a passage like Romans 9 has to do with this context. We cannot abstract it from that context and interpret it individually. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we're going to spend another week talking about Romans 9 through 11 next week. Uh, Pastor uh, Emily Morrison, not a pastor, but part of our teaching team, Emily Morrison, will be sharing next week about uh, Romans 9 through 11. And I'm really, really excited about this because our multi-voiced teaching team is an important part of how we see multifaceted aspects of the text. And Emily brings a third culture perspective as a missionary kid who grew up in Kenya. So you're, gonna, you're, gonna, you're not going to want to miss that. But in the meantime, I want to spend the brief remainder of my time this morning talking about what this passage is actually about. Because I, I feel like I owe that to you since I've said now that it's not about personal salvation and a lot of you already think that I'm a heretic. So I need to explain myself. Here's, here's the first thing I'll say. To a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And we in the West, those of us who've been formed by Western culture, are individualistic hammers. And every passage looks like an individualistic nail. And it's not because that's what's in the Bible, it's because that's what we are conditioned to read into the Bible. But to do that, we have to ignore huge portions of this passage. And we have to invest meaning in the terms in this passage that they didn't have in the first century. So we are mapping onto the text our cultural perspectives and our theological traditions instead of drawing the meaning out of the text. Are you with me so far? Okay. Here's what I mean. 
From the very first verse of this passage, Paul is talking about his anguish over the fact that his fellow Jewish people are not recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. The Jewish people who used to be in the, minor in the majority of the church in Rome are now in the minority. Don't miss this. When the church in Rome was founded, it was founded by Jewish disciples of Jesus. But then something radical, something Radical changed that. The expulsion of the Jews from Rome. In, in AD 49, the Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome. And this lasted for at least six year, five, five years until Claudius died and Nero became the new Caesar. Then in 54, Jewish disciples began returning to Rome. And now the church is predominantly Gentile. The church that they were familiar with, culturally comfortable with, was changed. It was different now. And this not only created tension, not only did this create tension, it created theological questions. Here's some of the questions that this raised. Has God's word failed? Is God unjust? In other words, has God been unfaithful? to the covenant that he made with Israel? If God has hardened Israel, how can God still hold Israel accountable? Has God rejected Israel to accept the Gentiles? These are important, urgent questions for the church in Rome. Here's why they're urgent and important. Because the, the disciples in Rome who are part of the weak faction feel displaced. Their privileged place in the church has now evaporated. And now they feel like they are on the outside looking in on their own church. Now, I want to pause here and say, yes, I use the word privilege. And in this internet age that we live in, privilege is one of those trigger words. And a lot of my skin folk, folk who are of my complexion, have a real tough time with this word. And there's been a lot of white lash re recently. For example, in the Southern Baptist Convention, there's been a lot of people who have spoken out about white privilege and have been called cultural Marxists. I want you to know that I'm not reading something into the text that's not there. And I'm going to prove it to you. Privilege is at the very beginning of this passage. Paul writes a laundry list of merit badges that the weak faction in Rome are wearing on their... What is this thing called? Sash. Sash, yes. I'm thinking of the Girl Scouts, right? Or Boy Scouts, yeah. The weak faction in Rome are wearing this laundry list of merit badges. Here it is. Verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Oh, but there's more. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, comes the Messiah. Boom. Mic drop. 
When you hear this laundry list, you can completely understand why the Jewish disciples in the weak faction feel like they deserve pride of place in the church. Our people gave you the Messiah. Case closed. God chose us sovereignly from among all the ethnic groups of the world. Us. So naturally, they boasted of this privilege. But Paul wants to challenge that, that privilege. Paul wants to challenge their interpretation of the biblical story. Paul wants them to see the biblical story not as God choosing Israel instead of the Gentiles, but as God choosing Israel for the sake of the Gentiles. You see the difference there? Here's what Paul says in verse 7. It is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, Jewish people, but the children of the promise are counted as descendants. The narrative that the so-called weak, mostly Jewish disciples have been living in is that they are a part of the chosen people of God and Gentiles are not. But Paul flips a script on them and says, those descendants that God promised Abraham, yeah, some of those descendants are Gentiles. He explicitly says this in verses 23 through 26. And what if he has done so in order to make the riches of his glory for the objects of mercy which he has prepared before, beforehand for glory, including us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not my beloved, I will call beloved. So what's going on in this passage isn't about individuals being saved so they can go to heaven when they die. No, in this passage, Paul is correcting the story that a faction in the church has been living in. Paul is reframing the story as one of God creating a new community made up of Jews and Gentiles. In Christ, we bring all of ourselves to God. Every aspect of ourselves. All of our culture. All of our ethnicity. Every aspect of ourselves. We bring it to God in Christ. And the gospel says that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and the Lord of all nations. All ethnic groups. In chapter 10... Paul is going to say, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is the Lord of all. So the message is that in Christ, a new basis of unity and equality has been established. But here's the problem with that. And you know this from experience. I know you do. The problem is that to the privileged, equality feels like oppression. Isn't that true? If you have enjoyed pride of place and suddenly you're told, no, you are on equal footing with everyone, suddenly you feel displaced. 
This is not fair, you say. I have always been privileged, and now I am not. That is bad. And this is what we need to talk about, sisters and brothers. Because there was a time when the Jesus movement was a persecuted minority. It was a minority sect among a powerful empire. But then, in mere centuries, it went from being underdog to top dog. It went from worshiping in catacombs to worshiping in cathedrals. From being a persecuted minority that was purified by martyrdom to the power brokers of the world that were complicit in oppression. This is called Christendom. This unholy marriage between the church and the empire. This is where Christianity is given pride of place in society. And Christians have enjoyed this in the United States for hundreds of years. But that time has gone. It's over. I don't know if you noticed it. Christendom is dying or dead. We are now in an era called post-Christendom. No longer does Christianity have a monopoly on power in the West. No longer do Christians enjoy the same levels of privilege that we have come to expect. Many millions of American Christians are grieving this loss and they're doing it badly. Many Christians in America want to return to the good old days. They want to get back to when Christians had pride of place in America. They are living in a narrative that looks more like May Mayberry than the kingdom of God. They're living in a story that looks like the set of Leave it to Beaver. But those days are gone and they aren't coming back. Followers of Jesus in the West now face similar challenges to those who confronted the early church. Romans 9 is a challenge to we who live in post-Christendom. We need to interrogate our narrative and ask ourselves, are we living in the story of the kingdom of God or are we living in the story of the American dream? Isn't that an important question that we should ask ourselves continually? Because if we're living in the story of the American dream, we are not only in danger of idolatry, we are in danger of threatening the witness of the gospel. In post-Christendom, the church of Jesus Christ must be an example of servant leadership. Not expecting or demanding pride of place. Not seeking to get back to the good old days, which weren't all that good for everyone, by the way. But instead, serving others in humility, demonstrating the character of Christ, and seeking the common good of society. In post-Christendom, the church of Jesus Christ needs to renew its allegiance to Jesus alone and reject and renounce all the other idolatrous powers that want our allegiance. Because you know what? When we were power brokers of the world, we messed it up really bad. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. We need to focus on faithfulness and prophetic witness. In post-Christendom, the church of Jesus Christ must confront our greed 
and renounce the materialistic ways of the empire. Because our greed is what has caused us to commodify human bodies. Our greed is what has caused us to be callous to human suffering. And as we continue to navigate this changing reality that we live in, we, we have to do it together as a community. Because it was the radical hospitality of the church in Rome in the first century that made them explode. That made them a beautiful witness to the gospel in the empire. And that's what it's going to be again. Our radical hospitality. But not only do we need to interrogate our narratives around the church's place in post-Christendom, we also need to interrogate our narratives around the place of white privilege in the church. Now, before you storm out, please don't leave. <laughs> I, this week I have the scars to prove that when you bring up white privilege, there will be white lash. And it's been one of those weeks. And um, this week in particular, I have been really frustrated by my skin folk because one story in particular dominated my social media platforms, all of my news feeds and timelines, and it's been called the hug heard round the world. Here's part of the backstory. In September of last year, an unarmed black man was murdered in his own home by a white police officer in Dallas. His name was Botham Jean. Botham immigrated to the United States from St. Lucia in the Caribbean, and by all accounts, he was an extremely devout follower of Jesus. Now, those are the facts of the case. Now I'm going to tell you my subjective experience of this, okay? Keep that in mind. My subjective experience. I didn't see anybody in my uh, timelines or feeds share about this story until the hug. And then all of a sudden my timelines exploded, like out of nowhere. I saw, I saw dozens of posts from my friends and people I follow who are white evangelicals. And with very few exceptions, they all celebrated this as an unmitigated victory. And what I'm talking about is this. Botham Jean's 18-year-old younger brother, Brant Jean, uh, he, from the stand, he offered his brother's murderer forgiveness and said that he did not even want her to have consequences for what happened. And he asked the judge if he could get up and physically hug her. And he did. And the judge allowed it and he did. And that picture is what my white evangelical friends shared online exclusively. And I heard things like, this is the gospel. This is so Jesus-y. This is so kingdom. And I saw in this an overwhelming compulsion to center and amplify this part of the story of Botham Jean's murder far and above any other part. Particularly above the calls for reforms in the Dallas Police Department far and above, especially, calls for racial justice. But here's the strange thing. On the other side of my social media feeds and timelines were 
many of my black and brown Christian friends, some, many of whom I know personally, and their posts about this were drastically different. Like living in two different planets. There were calls for caution in centering this young man's act of forgiveness. And calls not to turn it into a way to close the books on this story. I read sophisticated and brilliant analysis that integrated history and sociology and scripture and theology and intimate knowledge of what it's like to be a person of color navigating American society. I read some of the most thoughtful pieces I've read all year. Just, just one example, just one example. A covenant pastor named Jelani Greenidge wrote a piece called Forgiveness is a Gift, Don't Turn It Into a Weapon. I urge you to read that. It was brilliant, so nuanced, so powerfully prophetic and yet pastoral. And Jelani Greenwich, Greenwich is the son of Henry Greenwich, who for us in the covenant is a, a, a somewhat of a hero. He is the first covenant church planter to plant a multi-ethnic church in our denomination. And Jelani's article, it just echoed so much sentiment of what I was hearing and what I was feeling. And it struck the exact right tone amidst this cacophony of noise. So why were these responses so different? Well, because I've had Romans on the brain for a while now, I thought immediately of Romans chapter 9. And I thought of how this text is shining a spotlight on our privilege. Paul is asking essentially this, what if God is doing a new thing? Would you recognize it? Would you see it? And what if God's new thing makes you uncomfortable? What if God doesn't have to check with you and your expectations before God pursues God's redemptive purposes in the world? What then? What if God's sovereign choice isn't the choice that you'd make? Are you going to bail? Will you take your bat and ball and go home? What if being in Christ means that you have to make space for those who have less social power and privilege than you? Is that where you draw the line? Paul is asking, do you think the gospel is about you? And some of us, if we're honest, would have to answer, yeah, we did. We've made the gospel about our priorities and not God's. Last week, Pastor Durr invited Emily, Alice, and Destra, Desta to read the Beatitudes in their, in their native languages. Not Emily's native language, but a language that she speaks from the heart. And I took note of something that I think is important for us to take note of. I felt uncomfortable. I sat there not understanding a word they were saying for what felt like a long time, but it wasn't that long. That discomfort is good for me. Do you know that? It's good that I sit in that discomfort for the sake of my sisters and brothers for whom that was comfort. That discomfort connects me with Christ 
who was uncomfortable for our sake. That discomfort connects me with my sisters and brothers whom I love. And I took note of how I cherish every opportunity like that. I cherish the opportunity to make space for those who sometimes feel uncomfortable when I feel comfortable. Can I get an amen? Sisters and brothers, we are an intentionally multi-ethnic and multicultural community. And what that means is, sometimes you're going to feel uncomfortable. Those of us who have experienced privilege and lived in privilege for most of our lives, we have to understand that that's not the experience that we will have in this church. That's not the experience we should have in church. Because at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. We all come to him, come to Jesus, knowing that we are broken in need of God's grace. Amen? And that is why my application